This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt? John Wayne Bobbitt was raised in Niagara Falls, New York. His mother struggled with substance use, and his father was not around. He was raised by his aunt and uncle. John was an athlete when he was young. He would eventually enlist in the Marine Corps. Lorena Bobbitt was born in Ecuador. When she was seven years old, her family moved to Venezuela. In 1986, Lorena moved to Virginia on a student visa. John and Lorena would meet at a Marine Corps dance. John's parents told him not to marry Lorena, setting up one of the most significant I told you so statements in history. John and Lorena would marry on June 18, 1989. Lorena was 24 and John was 26. They lived in a house for a short time, but it was foreclosed. They moved into an apartment in Manassas, Virginia. At this point, we see different stories about what happened. Lorena has one account, and John has another. Lorena said that the marriage went bad in about a month. John physically attacked her. He liked rough sex and eventually started committing assaults of a sexual nature against her. He pressured her into having an abortion, which was against her religious beliefs. She was Catholic. She also did not believe in divorce, so she felt trapped in the relationship. John said that Lorena was jealous of other women that used to hit on him. He said that she may have been injured by him, but it was only because he was trying to restrain her as she was attacking him. On other issues, there seems to be more agreement. For example, both agreed they were having financial problems. John had trouble keeping a job, and Lorena worked in a nail salon. Lorena was the one primarily supporting the couple. The couple had a lot of contact with law enforcement. The police came out to their apartment about six times. On one occasion, they were both charged, although the charges were later dropped. Lorena was arrested for shoplifting from a Nordstrom. She also embezzled $7,000 from her employer, but her employer made her pay it back with interest, and the justice system was not involved. A few days prior to the attack, for which the couple would become famous, Lorena had told various people that John was harming her. Lorena went to the authorities and tried to obtain a protective order. They told her they would do it, but they needed a few hours. She said she was not willing to wait because she had things to do. John said that during this time, he wanted a divorce, which was the real cause of the couple arguing. Now moving to the timeline of the incident. The incident occurred on June 23, 1993, in the apartment of Lorena and John in Manassas, Virginia. Everybody agrees on those points, but like many aspects of this case, here we see this divides into two stories. Lorena and John each have their own version of the story. It would appear that John had been out drinking and came home to the couple's apartment sometime around 3.15 a.m. Lorena said that after John came home, he committed an assault of a sexual nature. John had multiple stories about what happened after he arrived home. He could not remember if he had sex with Lorena. They did not have sex. Lorena tried to initiate sex. They did have sex, but he slept through it. In all his versions that involved sex, the sex was consensual. 
Lorena went to the kitchen and retrieved an eight-inch carving knife from the counter. She went back into the bedroom, pulled the sheets off of John, and sliced off his member. She ran out of the apartment with the knife in her right hand and John's member in her left hand. As she was driving, she threw the member out of the window of the vehicle because she was having trouble driving with it in her hand. She drove to her employer and told her what happened. Her employer called the police. Lorena indicated where she had thrown the member out of the car. The police were able to find it not long after. They put it on ice in a hot dog bag and took it to the hospital. John was transported to the hospital. Two surgeons were able to reunite him with his member. Most of its functioning would return to normal eventually. Lorena wanted to report that she was the victim of an assault, but at that time the police were really more interested in the fact that she had initiated Mr. Johnson's journey, so to speak. Lorena told the police that John always had an orgasm, but didn't wait for her to have an orgasm. He was selfish. This was not fair, and it made her angry. She attacked him. Later, she would change her story as far as the motive and say she did not remember attacking him. John was charged in connection with the alleged assault of a sexual nature. Lorena was charged with malicious wounding. John was tried first. He was found not guilty. Neither John nor Lorena appeared credible during that trial. Lorena was tried after this. She appeared to be more credible as a defendant. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury believed that she had an irresistible impulse to remove John's member. She spent about 45 days in a secure mental health facility and was released. That was it. No criminal consequences for her behavior. Lorena and John would divorce in 1995. Lorena was arrested for assault in 1997 for allegedly punching her mother as they watched television. Lorena was eventually acquitted. Lorena would go on to find another romantic partner and have a child. She continues to be a bit of a polarizing figure. Some people view her as a hero, other people as a villain. John will go on to have a lot of problems. He appeared to have some difficulties regulating his intake of alcohol. He went bankrupt, even though he was making a lot of appearances and trying to be active in the media. He was sentenced to 15 days in jail for pushing a woman. He had surgery on his member to extend it, even though this is a bad idea in just about every way imaginable. The surgery failed catastrophically. He would have a member reduction performed many years later. For a time, John worked at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch in Nevada. They said that when he would drink, he would become physically violent. In 1999, he was involved in an attempted retail theft in Nevada. The dollar amount was around $140,000. He ran off to Niagara Falls with a sex worker from the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. She supported him for a few years. He allegedly attacked her at one point. He was arrested for harassment, convicted, and sent to jail. After being released, John married again. He was arrested in 2003 for battery against his wife. In 2004, he would be arrested two more times for battery against her. He spent 15 months in prison for violating probation, where he was attacked by other inmates a few times. In 2014, John broke his neck in a motor vehicle accident in Buffalo, New York. Unrelated to this accident, John had two toes amputated, one in 2019 and one in 2020. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, 
You'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season 2's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Now moving to my analysis. This case raises a number of questions, many of which center around the guilt or innocence of John and Lorena Bobbitt. By charging both people with different crimes, the state was essentially saying that they believed this was a situation with two victims and two perpetrators. Yet the prosecution failed to get a guilty verdict in either case. First, I will take a look at the case against John, then move to Lorena. I will look at the factors both for and against the idea that they were guilty, factoring in evidence that was available both before and after the trial. The jury, of course, only had access to some of that information, some of the information from before. Looking at the case against John, it's important to note here that he was charged in connection with an assault that occurred on the morning of June 23, 1993. He may have committed other offenses at other times, but he wasn't on trial for that. As far as the inculpatory evidence against John, several witnesses suggested John had harmed Lorena. For example, there was a customer at the nail salon where Lorena worked who saw bruises on her arms. John had previously told multiple stories about whether sex occurred on June 23. Lorena accused him of the crime, so she was saying that he did it. After the trial, John would be accused of a number of other offenses that were consistent with him mistreating women. Moving to the exculpatory evidence. During the trial, John said he couldn't remember if they had sex, but he knows he didn't commit a crime. No witnesses other than Lorena saw John do anything. There was no video, no physical evidence, nothing like that. Right after Lorena admitted John's member into witness relocation, so to speak, she told the police that she attacked John because he didn't wait for her to have an orgasm. Now later she changed the story, but that's what she said initially. Lorena had a strong incentive to lie. She was facing a lot of time in prison. Lorena told a story about her underwear being torn during the incident, but it was demonstrated that they were cut with scissors, then torn. This makes it seem like she was trying to fabricate evidence. John's defense argued essentially that he was not smart enough to lie. Many people agree with one side of that argument, but not necessarily the other. When weighing the evidence, I believe that John was not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. There simply wasn't enough evidence to show that he did it. He said he didn't. Lorena said he did. 
That's not enough without some type of corroboration. Now moving to the case against Lorena. She was charged with malicious wounding, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Based on her testimony, we know that she enrolled John in a member removal program, so to speak. There's really no question she was responsible. She attacked a person who was sleeping and unable to defend themselves. She was armed with a knife. He was unarmed. It was not self-defense because there was no exigent threat. The reason she initially gave the police for her attack had nothing to do with mistreatment. As far as the exculpatory evidence, this is really largely based on the idea of irresistible impulse, which is the law in Virginia. The idea here is that the harm that she endured led to a mental health state consistent with being unable to resist the impulse to attack John. As I mentioned in the inculpatory section for John's trial, there was really not much question that Lorena had been a victim. Many people believed that John had harmed her on prior occasions. John, of course, denied that. Mental health professionals testified that Lorena had PTSD, major depressive disorder, and panic disorder, and that these disorders made her lose control. They said that she was psychotic. After weighing the evidence, do I think that Lorena Bobbitt was guilty? In my opinion, she was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I think the jury made a mistake here. The irresistible impulse defense is not supported in these circumstances. The main support for this theory came from the idea that Lorena was psychotic. Psychosis is a break from reality, characterized by hallucinations and delusions. The mental health professionals never supported that claim with evidence. The act of committing an assault doesn't indicate psychosis by itself. Similarly, just because somebody is the victim of harm doesn't automatically mean they're going to be psychotic. That would be a low probability outcome for that situation. The only disorder that she was diagnosed with that is associated with psychosis is major depressive disorder. This disorder would typically lead to episodic psychosis, which would coincide with the depressive episodes. This is not what the mental health professionals argued. They implied this was a one-time psychotic break caused by the harm that Lorena endured. Considering the weak evidence for psychosis, the irresistible impulse defense falls apart. Stepping back from whether they were guilty or innocent and all the details of the trial, what really happened in this whole mess? When entangling all the different stories and looking at the evidence, here's what I think happened. This, of course, is just my opinion. Nobody knows for certain except Lorena and John. I believe that John drank a lot and mistreated Lorena. She also mistreated him from time to time. They had arguments frequently. They were not getting along well. They had sex on June 23, 1993. Lorena was angry about not having an orgasm. She connected all this to harm that she had suffered before. She simply had enough, and she decided to offer John's member an unplanned vacation. Realizing that she could go to prison, she changed her story. The case drew a tremendous amount of media attention. People viewed this case as representing wider issues, like domestic violence. Lorena's defense was able to spin the case away from the facts. Lorena jumped on board with this, even though she hadn't quite dialed in her story. A journalist with Vanity Fair noted that Lorena was not articulate as far as her defense narrative. There was this implication that Lorena was not doing herself any favors by telling her story, at least not initially. Lorena became confident in time because her defense team was articulate. They were able to assemble a convincing narrative. 
Lorena even turned down a plea bargain where she would have only spent four months in jail. During Lorena's trial, John did not impress anyone, he was not a sympathetic victim, and he seemed to be lying. Both Lorena and John appeared to have memory problems that were extremely convenient. In the end, the jury was able to empathize with Lorena more so than John. My final thoughts in this case. In my opinion, both Lorena and John were perpetrators and victims at the same time. They were simply horrible to each other. It was only a matter of who could be worse. Normally, when a couple separates, they separate into two parts. But this couple managed to separate into three, which earns them a place of distinction in the Bad Relationship Hall of Fame. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.